Today's episode is brought to you by MetaMask Portfolio. You'll be hearing more about them later on, but for now, let's get into today's interview. Happy to welcome to Forward Guidance, Aiden Garib, Head of Global Macro Strategy at PGM Global. Aiden, welcome to Forward Guidance. Great to have you here. Yeah, thanks, Jack. It's a, it's a pleasure. You do great work. Appreciate that. So Aiden, you do a bunch of things. I, I'm sure I could throw any topics at you, you know, term premium, stock valuation, what the Fed is going to do, oil prices, and you're going to, you, you know, you've done some thinking about it, you're going to have an answer for me. But I want to spend a good part of our conversation about China because you just put out a report that had some fantastic charts I thought was was really thoughtful. And I think, you know, my co- my coverage on forward guidance has been lacking of, of China. And I'd say broadly that people uh, are, if they are talking of China, it's it's only doom and gloom. And, you know, historically, I've found that when everyone's talking about gloom and doom, that's where potential opportunities are. And you saw today, as we record the the uh, late morning of October 18th, that Chinese growth actually uh, exceeded expectations. So perhaps is China exiting a recession rather than you know in, in the middle of one? Uh, Aiden, what is your uh, overall broad uh, view of China as, as we sit here today? Sure. Well, I think, first of all, I would say the Chinese economy is, I think, pretty misunderstood by Western investors uh, who, you know, the biggest disappointment, I would say, in financial markets over the last few years has been the disappointment of China's reopening trade. Um, However, if you paid attention to what the Chinese policymakers were telling you and where they were allocating capital and their growth plans, then I think investors wouldn't have been disappointed because they would have been, you know, investing along with what the PBOC and the CCP were telling you they were going to do. What do you What do you mean? I think a lot of investors have have expected that China's growth would, you know, in the reopening would take place similar in similar fashion to how it did in the West. Um, so, for example, that you would see pretty big, you know, fiscal transfers to household to kind of buttress them through the pandemic. Uh, you would see a return to you know, the, the, the dirty fixed asset investment, the roads and bridges to nowhere, the empty apartment buildings that we've all come to, to know and love out of China over the last, uh, call it 15 to 20 years. Um, however, I think the structural features of China's economy have changed, right? The notable one has been uh, China's gone from having a working age population that's, you know, growing by 5, 10 million per people per year to now an overall population in decline, and perhaps more importantly, a working age population that's declining by about 5 million people per year, and that by 2030 will decline by 10 million people per year. So all to say, unlike you know, a decade ago when China's working age population was growing and you know the, the CCP needed jobs, 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 jobs at any cost, empty apartment buildings, sure, roads and bridges to nowhere, just do it, create any of those jobs. In the context of a declining working age population, they need fewer jobs, but they need higher value added, higher paying jobs so that they can restructure and reorient their economy towards consumption as opposed to, you know, lower value added exports and uh, capex that's not really accretive to growth. And there's some folks who say that China really can't make it in its transition from a investment-driven economy to a consumption-driven economy, such as the U.S. And that's you know there's going to be a, a really painful transition as as it makes that move. Well, what do you think? So the, the transition isn't going to be smooth. And I think if you're 
an investor in Chinese equities or you're looking at Chinese growth, you're seeing kind of the frictions in that approach currently and how, how difficult it can be. Um, but there have been quite a number of green shoots showing that China can come up the value chain, um, diversify its economy and produce higher value added uh, exports that allow you know, China to, to become a more consumption driven economy. You know, for example, one of the things I point at is if you look back to 2015, uh, China came out with its uh, Made in China 2025 plan. And so if you look at what, you know, kind of the experts were telling you, if you look at what the experts were telling you about that plan. So, for example, a quote by the Center for Strategic and International Studies basically summarized China's 2025 plan by saying the plan seeks to raise the domestic content of core components and materials to 40% by 2020 and 70% by 2025 across a variety of high value added products like aviation and aerospace, electric power, new energy automotive, high-end robotics, etc. And so what I would then say is, well, look at some of the progress that China's made in that regard. Um, the number of industrial robots that China puts out every single month is just you know, continued to, to grow. Um, you know, last month they put out 33,000 robots, uh, you know, that were hovering around 40,000. But just to kind of put things back into perspective, um, McKinsey uh, Global Institute, so kind of the, the think tank for the McKinsey Consulting Company, had come out in 2020, 2021, and highlighted the market share of Chinese firms in China and in the rest of the world across a variety of high value added products. So you take electric vehicles, for example. In 2020, the market share of Chinese firms in China was 95% for EVs. Globally, it was about 5%. You fast forward to today, um, and you know I kind of sent you these, these new link, news links where China has overtaken Japan as the world's top car exporter. Um, there was an article from the Wall Street Journal titled Your Next Electric Vehicle Could Be Made in China, where they highlight that around 35% of EVs exported globally come from China. So you're seeing, um, you know, just from 2020 when they had a 5% market share to today where that's grown to 35%, right? Or even something perhaps more visceral that's, that's made the headlines uh, more recently is um, you know, Western governments, spy agencies, kind of security agencies have been surprised by the Huawei, uh, the new Huawei smartphone and, the you know, the seven micron uh, or nanometer chip that's in there that is essentially on par with, you know, an, an iPhone 12, which isn't, you know, that old. And so even though we've been pushing these uh, you know, trade restrictions and sanctions on China, you've just seen how much, how quickly they've actually developed in this regard. Um, so I hope that answers your question, Jeff. Thanks. And what about the Chinese stock market? Okay, China, it's building tons of electric vehicles. It's it's moving towards high value sectors. That's great. Uh, but the stock market is in the tubes. And I'll just show, put a, put a chart up of, uh, excuse me, actually, I'm going to Move move over here. Uh, th this is the chart I want I want to show showing uh, the in in light blue is MSCI China, so an index of, of Chinese equities showing that for nearly a decade, the total return since you know, a, a year ago nine years uh, nine years ago is basically flat. Uh, probably get a little bit with, with dividends, but actually foreign holding of Chinese stocks has gone up, and as Chinese stock markets crashed from 2021 to 
uh, you know, late 2022, the equity holdings of uh, from, from foreigners, you know, it went down a little bit, but not by much. So I would imagine that foreigners are holding on to their stocks, whereas local uh, you know, citizens of, of China and Chinese companies are dumping their stocks. So what I would ask you, what do uh, you know, the, in, the insiders in China, what do they know that the dumb foreigners don't? Now, I wouldn't say it's the insiders are necessarily selling stocks. I think there's just been some compositional shifts with respect to uh, how foreigners purchase stocks and, and the type of foreigners by asset class, I guess, or by investor type that are uh, buying and selling. So, for example, um, the foreign holdings in Chinese equities there that you'd seen uh, via the MSCI China index. So for the passive investors, because China is such a big weight in the EM index, about mm-hmm. 30% or 27%, um, they've not sold. What's happened is you've seen two things. One, uh, the China stock connect flows have diminished significantly. Uh, so foreign like institutional money managers have been selling out of Chinese names. And sorry, what is the stock connect? What is that? So the Stock Connect is basically the platform that allows foreigners to use kind of Hong Kong as a base to then buy uh, mainland listed shares um, in China. Uh, and they just do that because of the, you know, like the, the dual currency CNH versus CNY and, and the closed capital account. So they've just tried to manage how investors can go in and buy Chinese equities. Um, so the... When you look at that headline number, the passive flows haven't really diminished all that much. But what's happened is kind of a couple of things. So when Russia went and invaded um, Ukraine, a lot of investors said, well, okay, this is going to be bad for you know Russian equities. We can't invest in those anymore, but also commodities are becoming more important. What do we do? So they shifted um, out of China, out of EM Asia, out of Russia, and they went and they bought like LATAM equities, mm-hmm. for example, because there was a, a pretty good substitutability, the bare substitutability between the commodity components in LATAM equities and then Russia. And then kind of following that, you had investment start to come back into Chinese equities over the last year, let's say, but then that was disappointed with the reopening. And so then um, those types of benchmark hugging, you know, investment managers then went and looked for alpha elsewhere. And actually one of the places that you're seeing them, them uh, the active flows go is actually India. So if mm-hmm. you, for example, I have a chart that I'd sent you that shows uh, the net equity flows going between India and China and the relative performance that's driving between MSCI India relative to MSCI China. And so, you know, I can, I think that helps explain some of the divergence you're seeing where the passive managers are still buying and or holding the Chinese equities, but the active managers who are looking to outperform the benchmarks have been, you know, kind of chasing returns first in LATAM and then now in India. So that's a good point on the flows. Let's talk about the fundamentals. You've also got this uh, fantastic chart showing de- decomposing uh, the returns of MSCI China. As I said, for close to a decade, the returns now are close to zero. So the total return is is four uh, percent. The, the the market is down uh, a little over ten percent, but you're getting sixteen percent in in dividends. So that's how that that plays out. But earnings contractions EPS. That is negative. So, I mean, U.S. stocks, and I imagine even Europe, they've had earnings growth. I mean, it's normal. Companies grow their earnings. That's what they're supposed to do. But uh, the Chinese MSCI index, is their earnings are 26% lower than close to a decade ago. If the Chinese economy is, you know, so what, what is going on here? 
Yeah. So what's happening, and this kind of plays back into the the structural kind of changes that you're seeing in China, is a lot of the banks, the finance companies, the state-owned enterprises, they haven't necessarily been run for profit reasons, right? They don't have necessarily a strong profit motive. They are run at the direction of you know policymakers there. Uh, when you add massive you know debt increase that's largely been in the corporate sector via the local government financing vehicles which we can get into because they actually play an important part here i think that's where a lot of the uh, kind of that debt overhang has been and then now what you're having is central bank and government policy to basically take that corporate debt take that local government financing vehicle debt and pull it back onto the official you know provincial or central government balance sheet or actually the PBOC balance sheet um, and work to delever the economy that way today's interview is brought to you by metamask portfolio your one-stop shop to manage your crypto assets and access a range of Web3 services all in one place overseeing your crypto assets across different wallets and networks can be very complicated. MetaMask Portfolio solves this by giving you the reins to manage your crypto from a single decentralized application or dApp. Just connect to MetaMask Portfolio to get a bird's eye view of all your coins, tokens, and NFTs, and you can easily buy, sell, swap, bridge, and stake crypto assets at competitive rates right within the app from a vetted list of providers. No more jumping between dozens of sites and apps. MetaMask Portfolio lets you do more in Web3 your way, giving you secure and convenient access to a wide range of features and services all in one place. Manage your portfolio your way with MetaMask Portfolio. Click the link in the description of today's episode to get started. Thanks, let's get back to the interview. So now let's let's take a little bit of a, a dive into the debt. You've got these uh, four charts here. And you know when, when I was growing up, I would always hear and I would you know, think, because you, you think what you hear, that U.S. has a ton of debt and China has no debt at all. And you know we owe China a ton of money, which is true. China you know, owns, owns a lot of U.S. Treasuries, but I love your just decomposition of these these top of the, the charts of the leverage in a debt to GDP sense of China on the left in the top uh, versus U.S. in in the right. And so China has a lot less government debt, uh, but a lot more uh, corporate debt or bank debt. Let's let's zoom in. Uh, uh, so. Yeah, a lot more, a lot more bank debt. <laughs> well, the way it's showing up here, yeah, a little bit of bank debt at the top, but really the the lion's share of debt in China um, is that dark blue space, which is the corporate section there, and that's really due to the fact of, from a definitional perspective, um, the way that the structure of debt is kind of laid out in China puts it on the corporate balance sheet, both on the both in terms of you know the you know, traditionally like kind of over-levered corporates that you're seeing right now with some of the property developers. But then also if you look at the local government financing vehicles, technically those are kind of like distinct from, from the provinces. So um, that's where uh, those portions of the debt are. And so in aggregate, yes, China has more debt than the U.S. It's just the composition is slightly different. Um, and so what China is doing right now is essentially pulling a lot of that corporate quote unquote debt um, and putting that back onto the government balance sheet via the provinces and also the local government balance sheets and using the banks as an intermediary to do that. What are the types of companies that are borrowing? Is it 
a lot of banks and that that borrowing is, is counted as de- deposits, I guess. I don't know, as, as liabilities or is it, you know, is Alibaba, is all, the, all these companies, where is the leverage, you know? Yeah, so the, the leverage, I would say, um, in this sense, isn't the banks necessarily. It's the co- it's you know corporate. So it's uh, firms over specifically over the last couple of years trying to roll over debt. But it's just you know large and small firms um, that have been taking out debt from the banks, and then also the local government financing vehicles, uh, which are the shadow entities of the provincial governments that have. I would argue, and it's a bit opaque, but I would argue that's where you know, the lion's share of that corporate debt is, isn't the LGFEs, local government financing vehicles. Okay, explain these as LGFEs. In China, the central government dictates the priorities and it's up to the regional governments to essentially carry those priorities out in the way that they kind of see fit for them. So if the central government says, uh, hey, you know, region A, we need you to grow, you know, growing regional GDP is important. Okay. Well, what the central government does is it gives bond quotas to the provincial governments. So the amount of debt that the provincial governments can, can raise. Well, oftentimes that debt isn't sufficient to drive growth in that region. Um, but the local governments can't issue more debt than what that quota tells them they can do. So how do they get around this? Well, they set up a local government financing vehicle, so kind of an arm's length entity that will issue bonds. Those proceeds will go into kind of urban redevelopment. So I don't know, maybe they're building a train station or a port or a shopping mall or something. And once they finish that urban redevelopment project, it ends up lifting the land values of the land surrounding that redevelopment project, which just that land happens to be owned by the provincial governments. So then the provincial governments take that land that's increased in value, sell that to the property developers. The property developers will go and build apartment buildings, houses, condos, etc., pay the provinces, and then the provinces will then funnel the money back into the local government financing vehicles to pay off that debt. So it's just basically this... Uh, financing arm where the local governments will, you know, uh, redevelop land, which increases the land values. The provinces can then sell the, that land for elevated values to the developers and then use that proceeds to pay off the the initial loans. So is it somewhat similar to uh, um, a VIE, variable interest entity, or a special purpose vehicle? Yeah, more or less. But for, special, but for the government. But for the provincial governments, yeah. Okay, interesting. So I guess a lot of that corporate debt is is for real estate. Yeah, which is you know the lar- one of the I think it's the largest asset class in the world with a capital T A G. Yes, and how is the Chinese real estate uh, market faring? You had some charts which actually they look bad, but they looked not as bad as I would think, which is actually a scary thing because uh, you know if, if property prices in China, if if if, if it, what it takes to, to to you know wreck the Chinese economy is not property prices falling but them not just going up. So here we've got the, the uh, property cycle for tier one, tier two, and tier three cities. And you see a series of property you know, boom and bust in 2011, 2013, 2015. And then since about 2017, the property market has been uh, you know, somewhat quiet. And it's, it's not like prices are collapsing. I mean, year over year for tier one, they're, they're pretty much flat. They're falling a little bit for tier three and tier two. Yeah. 
So, you know, the, the big tier one cities like uh, Shanghai, for example, you've seen the house prices there slow. The smaller regional kind of rural tier three cities, that's where the price depreciation um, has been the most acute. Um, and, you know, what you've also seen has been a has been the, the government, you know, like destroying some of the, the overcapacity. And so as house prices have moderated, or in the case of tier two and tier three cities, outright declined, that's actually been one of the major drags on the animal spirits in China and consumption. Um, we'd mentioned that, you know, Chinese real estate is, you know, the largest asset class in the world. It also comprises about 37% of household assets. So, you know, I'm sitting here in Canada, which is also a, a country that has a, let's call it a love affair of real estate. And so, you know, I can imagine what the, the, you know, consumer confidence would be here if house prices were, you know, falling by five, 10 or 15% per year, they'd be pretty diminished as well. And what's actually interesting on the, the screen that you're showing there is on the top right, I break down Chinese loans to households and non-financial corporates. And so again, this highlights exactly this fact. So if you look at the, it's, I know it's a bit maybe messy. So the, the dark blue line are short-term loans. The light blue line is mid and long-term household loans. And then um, the red and green are short and long-term loans to non-financial corporates. So most of the loan growth that we've seen really since COVID has been going towards uh, the non-financial uh, corporate sector, again, to help them like roll over the debt amid the, you know, the, the shutdown economy. Um, in contrast, households have been delevering, right? You can see very clearly that mid and long-term household debt. That's actually been uh, slowing quite dramatically because, you know, what do you do when we've locked down the economy? We're not giving fiscal stimulus. Um, and, you know, your house prices, which are 37% of your, your assets, are going down in value. Well, you're going to delever. Um, and so that's broadly what you've seen. More recently, you've seen a little bit of an uptick here in short-term household loans. So really what I think is happening is the government just needs to effectively come in and help buttress some of the stabilization um, you know, that, you're, that it looks like you're seeing in the Chinese households. The problem for the, the central government and the regional governments is one of inexperience and one of uh, incentives. So what I would say by that is, the central government doesn't really have a track record of direct fiscal transfers to households in much the same way we've seen in, you know, the U.S. through COVID and Canada and in, and in Europe. And kind of on top of that, you know, Xi's come out recently and um, his remarks seem to suggest that he's um, he doesn't really favor that approach because it would make like the Chinese people soft, quote unquote, to, to kind of paraphrase what, what he said. Um, so he doesn't want to go through the direct transfer mechanism. The other thing is there is um, some disincentives at the regional government to kind of kickstart growth much, much in a much faster fashion. And so what I mean by that is historically, if you look at the incentive structure of a regional politician, it's to grow the GDP of that region fast and at a faster degree, let's say, than your neighbor, because that's showing, hey, I'm actually a better politician and better leader than, you know, the, the person running the region next to me. And so what would happen is if they gave, let's say, um, 
Jack, you and I are our two regional governments in in China, um, and maybe I'm an export oriented one, and you're one that makes kind of like、uh, electronics for the local market. Well, you know, global goods demand is pretty weak right now. So if we gave everybody,、um, you know. Uh, cash stimulus, then people in my region wouldn't buy products that are made in my region. They would buy some of the products that are made in your region. So it'd kind of be like a intra-country import imbalance, let's say, and that would make you look really good because your economic growth is growing. But it would make me look not so good because you know my economic growth in my region is not growing. And so that's why you've seen some of these.、Um, Rather like lackluster and ineffective、uh, policies, like vouchers for haircuts. So you know, like you're not going to grow, you know, GDP in China by giving people vouchers to go get haircuts, right? It might work to support some local economy stuff at the margin, but you know, in aggregate, it's not going to have a, a pretty sizable impact. Right. And is there also sort of a feedback loop where if I'm doing really well, my GDP is at ten percent? You're not satisfied with eight percent. You're going to go to twelve percent, and then I got to go to fourteen percent. Whereas if I'm at two percent, you could beat me by going to three percent. Yeah, yeah. So it's that within the context of an overall crackdown on credit and property sector credit, which is the 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 main way that these politicians know how to drive growth because that's what they've been doing for the last fifteen twenty years. And so, tell me about the crackdown on credit. I know I think it was called the the three、uh, red lines. Is has that been rolled back? And how six? You know, when we showed the chart of、uh, medium-term household debt has you know, growth has sharply fell. How much of that is due to regulation and the, the crackdown on credit? But the, you know, the government uh, uh, sort of incentivizing banks not to lend or, or companies not to lend versus just the economy is weak, so banks are not going to lend. So I think it's a, a couple of things. So the government, as it pertains to real estate, what the government has tried to do right now is、um, essentially. Just get the property developers to build what they have sold, but not yet started or not yet finished. Because,、um, you know, in China, the way the property market there works is,、uh, you know, once you sign the contract, you kind of you start paying the mortgage. And a lot of the Chinese were protesting because they were paying mortgages for projects that just weren't weren't getting built. Um, and so I have some charts in the slide that shows if you look at the real estate activity that's taking place. You can see China's、uh, residential floor space, and you can see again that that blue line completions—that's all that they're really doing. You're not really seeing much new construction. You're not seeing many sales. You're not seeing actually product、uh, projects being started. More to the point, and this kind of、uh, is a good segue from what China's growth model has been to where it's kind of going. Is if you look at the the top left hand chart on this page, you'll see that when you look at、uh, credit growth in China. Um, so for you know from 2012 to let's say COVID,、um, that green line was where you saw all the growth. So real estate. So most of the credit growth in China was going to the real estate sector,、um, and then you know since COVID and the crackdown on on property, that's actually slowed quite dramatically. And you're seeing the industrial、uh, capex actually take the lead. So this is again helping to build out that. You know the electricity grid,、um, better water distribution. Um, uh, uh, so water distribution, electricity,、um, building out like the the factories and, and making those more efficient. The industrial robots, all those things that I kind of highlighted in in some earlier slides with you. So if you're a real estate developer, it's hard to get credit in China. 
But if you want to build an electric vehicle factory or a, you know, an engineering plant, it, the, the spigots are on. Yeah. So the one, I guess, portion of or you know aspect of nuance, I would say, in that is if you are a real estate developer who needs some financing to complete a project that's already been sold, then I think the the government and the banks are accommodative of that. But to your point, <coughs> yes, like they have realized that the turning on the spigot full way into the real estate pocket of the economy, that was the growth model that China employed over the last 20 years. But actually credit to this kind of newer or uh, higher value added pockets of the economy, that's where the credit's going to start going from now on. Tell me about the systemic effect to the Chinese financial system of the failure of several or potential failure of several large real estate firms. The most conspicuous one is Evergrande, which over two years ago was teetering on collapse. And I thought of as bankrupt and it, you know, unofficially was bankrupt, but it's actually taken two years for it to officially default. So, uh, you know, just shows how long these things can take. Uh, in, in America, you know, you have a collapse of something like Lehman Brothers and that that has a cascade because it's a, it's a counterparty, Evergrande, you know, real estate firm, not not a, a bank, uh, although it had its you know hands in, in many different types of areas. But uh, what what is sort of the systemic risk within the real estate and banking sector? Because real estate and banking are very related. Most of the defaults that you've seen have been on the offshore bonds in China. So for example, on the bottom right, you can see this Chinese bond default rates onshore and offshore. So there were, you know, kind of foreigners that were uh, buying largely FX denominated uh, debt. What the um, authorities have been trying to do is ring fence the domestic economy and the banks from that. And you can see this in kind of a number of ways. So um, this is actually a great page for the slide decks, because um, what you're seeing on the top left is the local government bond issuance. So that is basically surged, right? And so the local governments are now issuing bonds backed by the by the banks. And you can see this on the top right. So mm-hmm. scroll over a little bit on the top right, you'll see net financing of corporate and government bonds. So the financial system is essentially helping to finance the issuance of the red line there, which is government bonds, largely the provinces. And then in turn, sorry, who's, is the banks buying that private private yeah. citizens are buying it? Yeah, and so there was some other slides where you could see like the the PBOC's balance sheet, mm-hmm. where essentially what they're doing is claims on banks or depository institutions are increasing. So they're basically pr- giving like PBOC is printing money, giving that to the banks. The banks are then um, buying provincial bonds, which the provinces have been incentivized to issue. And then the provinces uh, are using those proceeds to essentially buy back the local government financing vehicle debt. And what this is doing is it's creating a bifurcation in the credit market where the provinces and the local governments are looking better from a credit uh, perspective than is traditional high yield in China, which you can see yeah, exactly on that bottom left-hand chart on page eight. So these and are- Is that red line high yield? Is that US high yield or China's high yield? That's China's high yield in US, so the USD uh, um, bonds, basically. And so you can see that um, historically, um, there's been, well, at least over the last couple of years, in terms of prices, they've been very correlated until very recently, when the local government financing vehicle bonds have been performing much better than traditional high yield. 
Uh, and this speaks to the fact that, you know, the authorities are really trying to ring fence the domestic financial system and pull a lot of that debt back onto the balance sheet of the government. Using so the China is trying to shelter the domestic Chinese financial system from defaults, but all of that excess is sort of pushing pushing the, the 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 wastewater out to the rest of the world. I respect that as a China, you know, if Chinese they want to protect their their national financial system, but the rest of the world probably doesn't like that, right? I mean, yeah. Look, if you're a hedge fund and you were buying some speculative grade, uh, you know, uh, dollar bonds in China, trying to pick up a yield, then you're clearly not going to like the defaults. Um, but I think like that's a you know maybe a small price to pay if you're the Chinese authorities in your cost benefit analysis. Tell me about what's going on with the yuan. I know it's been weakening, but uh, the yuan is, is is the yuan pegged or is it is it not pegged? Because it doesn't typically move that much, but it has been moving. It's an odd question. Like it's more like a stable crawl where the government just wants to make sure that the moves aren't abrupt. Let's say right, uh, and so they set a fix, um, and which is basically you know telling the banks, hey, we don't want the currency to move more than this. And more recently, that really hasn't been enough, and the currency has been uh, weakening a little bit more. And Really, I think that just comes down to the fact that on paper, China has a closed you know, capital account, let's say, but um, you know, they do want entities coming in and buying Chinese equities and buying Chinese bonds. And there's a lot of fixed asset investment, uh, like um, uh, portfolio flows and, uh, and other like kind of longer term flows going into China. So in reality, it's not as like shut as you would necessarily or not as closed as you'd necessarily think. And so there has been some depreciation in the RMB, which is problematic, I think, if you're the Chinese. I think what maybe mitigates some of the, the risk of the weakness that you've seen in the RMB has been um, substantial delevering of FX-denominated debt over the last couple of years. But then also, China's been doing a pretty good job of uh, denominating com- uh, mm-hmm. commodity trades in its own currency, which I have some slides on there. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also, um, you know, by buying discounted Russian crude and exporting that refined product um, where, you know, the refineries are running at basically 80% of of capacity and uh, they're exporting quite a bit of it. That's helped kind of shield the economy from the weakness that you think given where the RMB is. And the Chinese interest rates are quite low. I think around uh, uh, 2%. Is that stimulative? And then also we should say that unlike a lot of the world, China does not have an inflation problem. And in some cases, you know, some months it actually has, has deflation. So, uh, does that, you know, could rates go even lower? And what's the impact on the financial system there? In terms of the deflation that you're seeing in China, most of that is actually food prices. So I would argue that if you're the PBOC or the central government, that's not a terrible outlook for you to have like deflation being driven by food prices, because that's uh, typically been like what they've struggled with and what they've they've been kind of concerned about is you have uh, pork and chicken prices rise quite dramatically, fueling inflation, and that leads to social unrest. So I argue that that's not a huge um, uh, kind of negative for them. Uh, yeah, when you look at the interest rates in China, they're substantially lower, call it in like, you know, the the 2% to 2.3% range. Uh, if you're looking at, you know, seven-day repo rates or three-month uh, interbank rates. Um, could they go lower? I don't think so. I think what the government wants to do is 
have a less reckless approach to, to credit growth. So I don't foresee that going substantially weaker. Um, and so I think they are, they understand that you're going to have a weaker currency and they're going to, they're going to have weaker growth. Like if nothing else, I think it's just, if, if you just start with the default position that like the Chinese policymakers are dumb, right? Like they understand, Hey, we've used credit for 20 years to drive a massive real estate investment growth model. And now we're not doing that. And I think they're going to, it's fair to say that they understand that they are going to have slowing growth. Right? that you know some of these problems aren't necessarily going to be a surprise to them um, and so I think they're just more or less happy to um, to to let the animal spirits kind of like naturally take over as this uh, long process kind of draws out and then support that where possible given the institutional constraints that I talked about with respect to like know-how and then also you know their lack of, of kind of really uh, proclivity to fiscal transfers to households. And then how would you uh, describe the economy of, of China over the past year uh, has it entered a recession? Because even though, again, this is the question of the nominal question of growth slows from eight percent to five percent, that's not a recession, but it is a it is a you know pretty significant contraction in growth. And because China does not have an inflation problem, you know, negative uh, a real growth is not negative. Um, but I know unemployment, you, you're having a lot of sectors. So 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 has China been in a slowdown? Would the slowdown be so significant you would have called it a recession? And is China leaving? Is it exiting recession, which is, you know, it's, it's a good place to be if it is. I think it's very difficult to argue that China has not been in a recession. So I would say, yes, China has been in a recession. Um, I think, for example, if you look at Chinese export volumes, Earlier this year, they were contracting by, you know, close to 20% on a year-over-year -year basis. So it's hard to argue that if your exports are contracting, um, your households are delevering and you're forcing deleveraging on your, your corp on basically the engine of growth over the last 20 years, the real estate sector, that you're not going to be in, in recession. Um, so regardless of what the nominal GDP, like the nominal GDP numbers in China anyway, you basically yeah. throw them out because they target real, they tell you what they want real GDP growth to be and it tends to hit that number. Mm -hmm. So um, I would just argue if you look at the the underlying, you know, fundamental data where it's, you know, Chinese trade or it's um, the Li uh, Kikiang indicator, which tracks like rail, flay, or rail freight, uh, bank loans and um, electricity usage, you basically show that, you know, the economy has been in a recession. And is it exiting a recession right now? I would argue that on this, it looks like services are picking up and retail sales look to be bottoming here. When you look at like, I think I have some charts there looking at, you know, domestic and international uh, passenger flight volumes. So the Chinese are, you know, increasingly, um, you know, going out and, and, spending on services. And, you know, it's actually interesting because a couple of months ago, if you'd looked at the luxury brand, so if you looked at, for example, like the big coffee, global coffee shop chains were telling you and the big luxury brands were, were telling you, and you kind of sum that up, the view of what the Chinese consumers were doing was they were buying American brand coffee, um, luxury handbags for Europe, and then going to like Shanghai Disneyland, right? So it was more of like this domestic tourism story. Now, that isn't going to be what drives, uh, you know, growth long term, for example, but you are seeing that there are these bits of like 
uneven green shoots of growth that are taking place. It's just the government hasn't been as willing or able to to kind of shore that up um, as much as they should have been, or one would have thought. And then tell us about this chart, which shows the outflows from China, the the net portfolio flows, which has been negative for a while. What is this? Is this stocks, bonds, and is this you know foreigners buying Chinese stocks, selling Chinese stocks? Is it China's uh, um, you know banks? Are they selling treasuries? That you know people have been talking about China selling the treasuries, uh, but I know also they they have a little port in Belgium where they may be you know they, they actually are buying, even though it's not in China um, on you know on behalf of the Chinese government. What what is this chart showing here? Yeah, so what this chart shows you is Chinese portfolio net flows, stocks and bonds. And this chart is agnostic to who's actually doing the selling and buying. And that's just the granularity that you're able to get out of this series from the the Chinese authorities. So um, it could be foreigners that are less negative on Chinese assets. So at the margin, you know, they're not selling as much. Um, Or it could be domestic entities that are, uh, you know, pulling their foreign capital back into China. Wait, I'm, I'm I sorry, think, but it, if I sell, there has to be a buyer, right? If you buy, there has to be a seller. How how could this, sorry, can you explain this? I, I don't get it. Yeah. So it could be, for example, that foreigners are less bearish on China. And so they're starting to come in and uh, are buying proportionally more Chinese stocks and bonds that they had in the past. Uh, it could also be that Chinese firms are repatriating, uh, you know, kind of portfolio flows back into China. So maybe they want to, you know, sell U.S. stocks or, um, you know, global bonds and pull those proceeds back into China. Given like the capital account restrictions that you see, I would, my inclination is that um, it's actually foreigners that are starting to come in again and, look at opportunities in the stock and bond market in China. On your question on uh, on kind of FX reserves and, and treasuries, uh, largely I don't think it would, it would show up here um, because China does have these uh, entities in, in Europe. So, you know, Belgium is one place, but uh, Ireland is, is another place uh, where it would accumulate FX reserves. Also, China's, and this is something, you know, I've talked to some of your other guests, um, you know, like Mike Green and, uh, you know, Michael Cowan uh, a lot too, is the fact that uh, Chinese, the Chinese FX reserves, particularly like the the short dated uh, uh, treasuries, they're able to essentially use those to lend into Japan and pick up a substantial like yield um, pickup over what you'd get just holding those nominal treasuries. So uh, we're getting into the, the weeds of like FX swaps, but basically because of the, the cross-currency basis swap spread between the dollar and yen is, is so wide, if you're willing to lend dollars into um, Japan, you can hedge the currency and then pick up like treasury plus returns with very little, with essentially no FX risk or very little um, uh, credit risk since you're just lending to the big pension plans, essentially. So I don't think they would be actively selling down the the treasuries. Just globally, what you've been seeing is slow global growth. And so if there's slow global growth, it means there's slow global trade. If there's slow global trade, it means there's just less FX reserve accumulation. And guess what? Since U.S. Treasuries are the world's predominant FX reserve asset, it just means that there's going to be less FX 
you know, reserve buying of treasuries if you have slow global growth and slow global trade. And I think that's largely what you're seeing. Now, could they be some unease around, you know, geopolitical issues and and the U.S. maybe sanctioning treasury securities? It's possible, but you know, I think the the two economies are so linked that I don't think that's necessarily what they're what they're doing. Earlier, you you referenced a chart which we'll put up shortly of the percentage of currencies that that are used for global trade and i think the dollar doesn't even appear on the chart the euro because they're they're so high so uh, it it shows just the the renminbi usage which has you know ticked up from 2011 from zero to to a little bit uh but it's been somewhat flat um how you know, what what are the chinese ambitions for the internationalization of the the renminbi this is obviously nowhere close to uh a dollar, the euro, dollar yeah. but uh, is yeah. that is that even part of the ambition at all or or no so I think China wants to be a global reserve currency. I don't think they want to be the global reserve currency. The reason being is if you are the global reserve currency, by definition, that must mean you import stuff and export your local currency. So for example, if you're the US and you're the global reserve currency, you can't export cars and dollars. You need to import cars from Japan, let's say, and then export dollars, right? That's the way the system's going to work. And insofar as there's global growth, the world needs a proportionate increase in dollars. So for example, if you're uh, India and the Indian economy is growing by 5%. The Indian economy needs 5% more oil. Well, guess what? It needs 5% more dollars to buy that oil, all else being equal. So what China wants to do is not replace the, the dollar or the U.S. as the global reserve currency. Really what China wants to do is it wants to denominate the, its commodity trade in RMB terms. Because then, if you're the, the Chinese, you kind of win. You're like, look, we don't have commodities, but we can print red pieces of paper and then buy the commodities that we need with those red pieces of paper that we've printed. Like, great, sign me up, right? So that's what they're trying to do. And sorry, what, why is that better than being able to print red pieces of paper that can buy green pieces of paper dollars to buy oil? Right, because then what you risk is currency depreciation and then dollars rising and commodity prices rising. And so then your inflation rises, which then creates problems, right? Whereas like if you're printing it in your own currency, you kind of diminish those risks. And so as part of that, what you need to do is you need to give um, your you know, export partners. So let's just say like Saudi or Iran or Russia, or whoever you're buying commodities from, you need to give them a reason or a way to essentially hold RMB, right? And so um, this is, I think, is another uh, factor that plays into what China is doing with its bond market is, hey, if we can absorb this debt onto the government balance sheet, issue these, issue these bonds in a transparent way with a sufficient yield, then actually maybe these bonds look attractive to foreigners so that if we print RMB and uh, we pay Brazil RMB for soybeans, then Brazil has an incentive to hold those proceeds in RMB in our government bonds because they are providing some sufficient yield and it's a pretty big, like, you know, a deep liquid market. 
right? Because everyone talks like, hey, why is the why are U.S. Treasuries the global reserve asset? Like, what is it about them that makes them the global reserve asset? Well, they're deep and liquid. What does deep and liquid means? It just means there's a lot of them and you can buy and sell them really yeah, uh, with yeah. very small bid-ass clips, right? So, okay, well, that looks like what China is trying to do. And so what I show here on this page that you'd alluded to, page 18 or page 16, is after the dollar and the euro, uh, the share of payments via SWIFTs, uh, sterling is about 7% of that. And then directly below that um, is Japan and the RMB, which are both right around 3.5%. So, you know, that might be something that most, you know, investors or most listeners don't know is that, look, uh, RMB is as traded on, you know, via SWIFT as is um, the yen. And then essentially when you look at the top right-hand chart on this page, 16, um, I'm showing the trade in RMB as a percentage of total Chinese trade, which is about, you know, over a quarter. So, you know, China, uh, I'm showing on the bottom, I'm kind of jumping around here, so forgive me, but China um, is the largest trading partner for 120 countries in the world. And um, in line with that, about 25, 26% of total Chinese trade is denominated in RMB. So they're halfway there. They are getting countries to take RMB. It's what do those countries do with the RMB after Wait, say that again. Say them. that last bit again. What, what's the half statistic? Uh, sure. So half, I guess, something, half of all of the trade is denominated in RMB? No, so it's a, a quarter, 25% as per the top right. Okay, so, sorry. Uh, sorry, I maybe was going a bit too quick for the chart scrolling. So, um, yeah, you can say on this chart, essentially what I was just been saying is that China is the largest trading partner for 120 countries in the world. And, you know, over 25% of China's trade is denominated in RMB. So what that means is, sure, China is getting more countries to take renminbi, you know, as a, for exports and imports, the question is, what are these, um, what are these countries doing once they've taken the RMB? Typically, what you do is you just dump the RMB, buy U.S. dollars, buy U.S. Treasuries, and then do whatever else you need to do, right? Uh, but what China's trying to do is build out its bond market um, and just give these foreigners a reason to hold renminbi, so that um, it's essentially creating some incentives to to keep you know, to, to kind of keep that system going where they can print red paper for the commodities that they need. Now let's move on. Our final topic on China is just this transformation uh, of opportunities. If, if, if it's moving, the credit growth is moving away from real estate to industry. Let's talk about that, that industry. So you've put up here uh, some, some uh, electrical stocks in China, as well as the, the K-Web ETF, which is the internet uh, ETF. So, you know, clearly on, you know, we're seeing um, on the bottom bottom right here, that there are Chinese companies that have have grown their their earnings tremendously even over the past uh, four years. Do you think that you know is China a stock pickers market where you know it, it, where companies you can predict their earnings will grow a lot and the stocks will go up? Um, because I would say about the KWeb ETF, a lot of those companies have you know revenue and net income charts over the past ten years that look exactly like Apple or, or Google. But KWeb also has been you know, pretty flat over the past 10 years. Yeah, so that's the, the great question. And so I think there are opportunities for you know, bottom-up stock-specific analysts in China. 
the problem, as always, with when you're trying to analyze China is what's the data quality like, right? What are the accounting standards like? Um, can you trust those things? So, you know, I'm more of like, you know, I run a macro team here. So uh, luckily, uh, that is not, um, you know, something that I have to spend a lot of my time doing. But all I really try to say here is, look, if the if the China, if, if there's kind of like one lesson from China, it's if the authorities are throwing money at something, then there's going to be opportunities for return there for, for global investors, right? And um, what investors need to do is just realize where the money's not going, i.e. real estate anymore, and where it is going, which are some of these high growth, high value added sectors. So all I really try to do here is on the bottom right-hand slide, I'm just showing some of the Chinese electrical uh, computer and equipment stocks, their trailing earnings, just the direction of those things to show, look, like this is where the Chinese government and the PBOC and the authorities are directing the, the money to. And then on the top left, I just highlight those the stock prices for those firms, which may or may not have, have done well. And I think this is kind of the disconnect and it speaks to, um, you know, I think some of the disappointment among bottom-up Chinese investors, at least the ones I talk to, which are saying, you know, we do a lot of the bottom-up work, the earnings are actually doing well, but, um, you know, the we're not being rewarded in terms of, of, of prices, right? And um, so I think as increasingly investors kind of come to understand what China is doing, then that return can start to be harvested. And then also, Jackie picked up on a good point, which is the bottom left-hand chart on page 15. Um, so this is the shares outstanding for these specific ETFs. And the reason I share, I show, sorry, I show shares outstanding is it gives an indication of what the foreigners, what foreign investors, so Americans, Canadians, Europeans, et cetera, are actually doing. Um, and so at the margin, they're not selling KWeb, right? Because you're seeing shares outstanding. I mean, it's down off the, you know, the peak, but you know, it's it's substantially high. When you look at these other pockets, um, these other ETFs, you can see that they're they're flat. So it looks like investors in Chinese uh, equities and ETFs are taking a page out of like the crypto bros, which is just they're hodling, right? They're just you know it's just they're going through they're going through the the crypto winter, but the Chinese growth winter basically. The Chinese growth winter has actually been longer than the crypto winter. Style winter. Uh, yeah. So, but you know maybe uh, you know, maybe spring is coming. Um, Let's quickly, the final thing on China is the different types of shares, A shares, B shares, H shares, and then uh, ADRs, American Depository Receipts. Uh, which are the shares that are sort of variable interest entities outside of the, uh, you know, uh, sourced from the Cayman Islands, where when you read their 1,000-page annual report, it says, we don't actually own the company, we just operate it kind of like a puppet. Uh, and, you know, people talk about that as a risk. Um and how severe of that is a risk of, oh, I invested in company XYZ and you know, from 2023 to 2033, their earnings grew 20 times. But I see none of it because I'm a shareholder you know, in uh, Tennessee. So those would be the ADRs that are listed in the US, but you know, the, variable, uh, the variable interest uh, entities that you know, nominally are, are going to kind of track what's uh, what's on the Chinese market. A shares are then the ones that are um, denominated in RMB and trade on the mainland there. And then you have like the H shares, which trade in, in Hong Kong, uh, which t tends to be one of the ways that 
foreign institutional investors will will kind of invest in China. Now, is it true that it's illegal for foreigners to inv- at least the law is it's illegal for foreigners to invest in Chinese stocks? Technically, obviously, there's a lot of workarounds. No, I don't think it's well. Look, the Stock Connect shows you that it's not illegal. No, and there's these two programs that have been they they were actually quotas and then they relaxed the quotas, like the QFII and the RFQII, which was basically like if you can use a registered entity. So, um, if you were like a hedge fund, let's say you would, um, you know, you could uh, have a go to a broker in in Hong Kong, put money with that broker. Uh, instruct that broker, which at the time needed to be approved, but anyway, I'm, I'm not going to go through all the steps. Essentially, yeah. use that broker to then transact buy shares in uh, buy a shares listed in in, uh, in in the mainland, and then you would kind of have a claim on those a share assets. Uh, so, no, it's not illegal um, for foreigners to hold domestic Chinese assets. I would argue, like that's actually what the Stock Connect program is designed to do. How worried are you about the so-called reverse CFIUS of uh, the U.S. imposing restrictions on foreign investment into uh, Chinese property, Chinese private equity, and any maybe even stocks? So that was you know a huge deal uh, a couple of years ago, even last year maybe, uh, as the tensions had ramped up. It's it's a concern. It's just it's an unknown. I think from the the economies are so intertwined that you know china owns a lot of u.s treasury so it can just go into this like tick for t- you know tick yeah. for tit kind of escalation there i think for the chinese that's definitely a problem because if you don't want to be reliant on on exports as your sole growth model well you still need capital flowing into your to your economy you still need to finance investment and so you know stocks and bonds are an efficient way of of, of that being done and so um, I would argue it's in the best interests of both the U.S. and China to get a deal on this. But I, I just the it's one of these things where the 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 severity of that risk is very high, but I can't place a probability on it, and so it becomes difficult for me to <laughs> kind of think about that. That makes sense. Well, Aiden, thanks. We, we've done an, an hour on China. Uh, if you if you'll stay, we'll do a few more minutes just on, sure. on the macro. The, I, I I just checked. I hadn't checked before. Uh, checking, but uh, the bond, mar- bond market has a huge sell-off as well. So I think yeah. pretty much every tenor of the yield curve is once again at uh, the the highest yield since uh, 2007 or, or 2006. The 20, 30 year are now both above 5%. So the, the bonds, onslaught in bonds continues. Do you think it's close to being over? I mean, so many people have said, oh, now's the time to buy bonds. Oh, now's the time to buy bonds. And they've been you know blown out of the water. Um, but it, it seems, I mean, the move is, is extreme. The Federal Reserve is probably close to done, be done hiking interest rates. Uh, you, you tell me. Um, and then there's, you know, the term premium issue, issue which, uh, there's the supply issue. What, what do you think? One of the reasons to, to be a little bit more cautious as it pertains to duration, at least, is the fact that, um, it's not clear that the Fed has, that the economy is slowing sufficiently for the Fed to, you know, start cutting or or back off here. Um, we got, you know, the retail sales numbers that came out, the inflation data that came out here. 
is supporting the growth side of the economy. And look, there's, you know, we put out a note today that showed a lot of uh, delinquencies in terms of credit cards and autos and some of these other pockets. So it's not to say that there isn't weakness yeah. out there. There but is. It's normalization. It's, it's delinquencies to a 2019 level, which was historically low. It's not, you know. Yeah, so you're having pockets of this weakness here. Um, but I think what's maybe more concerning for investors in duration is the fact that, and this is kind of the big problem for, for Powell, I think, and I think he recognizes this, is Powell needs to get commodity prices down in dollar terms. Because very rarely have you seen periods where the broad dollar, so the broad like trade-weighted dollar, is strengthening, but commodity prices are also strengthening. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I think the problem is that if you get this kind of strong dollar, which has limits as to how strong it can it can appreciate from here, but commodity prices keep ticking up, then what you end up doing is you lift inflation expectations. And actually, if you look at the spread between like break evens and you know the five-year, five-year inflation swap, which tend the latter tends to, to track oil prices. Uh, inflation swaps are telling you that, hey, there's more inflation coming. And actually, when you look at what's helping to, or at least what's contributing to the bond sell-off here um, today, it's this pretty big uptick that you're seeing in, in energy prices, right? Coming out of the, you know, the what looks like an escalation of, of the Mideast tensions here. So you have higher commodity prices, which are fueling uh, inflationary concerns. And then, you know, the growth is still holding up. So why would I be buying duration here? Wait, wait, so it's a five, I'm looking at inflation expectations, the five-year, five-year forward inflation uh, break-even, what you know, derived from the, the TIPS, Treasury Inflation Protected Security. Uh, that that rate actually hasn't gone up that much. It's at 2.5%, you know, and it, in uh, May of 2022, it was at 2.6%. Uh, what's gone up is the is the term premium, which basically is what's the unexpected, the unexplained thing. You have the equation and then you have an error function. And then it's my understanding, the term premium is basically an error function. Okay, so two things. I, I think we're, we're, uh, we're, we're mistaking two terms. So there's break-even inflation, which is the difference between nominal treasury yields and tips yields. And that yeah. essentially is that spread is the inflation rate that would make an investor agnostic, i.e. break-even between yep. holding nominal and tips. What I'm actually talking about is five-year, five-year inflation swaps, okay, okay. which are not the break-even inflation. So as of right now, the break-even inflation that you spoke about, which is nominal minus tips yield, is pricing in 2.4% inflation over 10 years. So that's what the 10-year break-even is. Uh, and if you look at the five-year, five-year inflation swap, so just a different measure of inflation over 10 years, a more market-focused uh, measure, because actually I would argue that the, the Fed's balance sheet is the store tips market. But Fair. anyway, that's a different conversation. So if you look at the five-year, five-year inflation swap, that's actually uh, pricing an inflation of like 2.7%. And that that measure, that inflation swap, tends to follow energy prices. What was that three, six months ago? Is it, is it gone up? Yes. Yeah, so it hasn't gone up much, but it looks like, let's say we we're at like 250 and now we're at 270. Got it. And uh, yeah, so, you know, Kind of those are the rough numbers there. And so that's what's helping to fuel this increase in the term premium, because the term premium is really, um, do I want to hold a 10-year bond or do I want to buy a one-year bond and then roll that over like nine times, right? So the risk to holding a 10-year treasury rather than rolling over a one-year bond nine times is the fact that, hey, inflation and growth 
are uh, difficult to predict over 10 years. And so I need a higher uh, return as a bond investor for taking that risk of duration because growth and inflation are, are difficult to forecast. And so because the Fed had taken a lot of duration out of the market via you know, the asset purchases, uh, the term premium was actually quite negative. Um, but as you start to get some incremental supply of, of, um, of duration, and perhaps more importantly, as inflation expectations and energy prices are starting to drift higher, and you know there's some concerns about stagflation, all of a sudden, you've seen this lead to a backup in the term premium, which is, look, like growth and inflation are pretty uncertain. If you want me to hold duration, you need me to comp- you need to compensate me, f- you know, for that. And I think that's what the uptick in the term premium has mostly been about. Got it. So you don't love bonds here. You don't love duration here. What do you think about U.S. equities? So U.S. equities, I think you're probably okay in pockets of the mega caps. The issue I have with U.S. equities is the fact that, so if you look at what typically drives U.S. equities, it's going to be passive flows, which, you know, Mike Green has talked a lot about. So the target date funds, as long as people have jobs, you know, every two weeks they get a paycheck, that paycheck just blindly buys, you know, QQQ, SPY, it takes the market cap weighted stocks higher. Um, However, the other factor here is the ability of, of, you know, banks to, to use their balance sheet in order to, uh, facilitate, you know, some of these like riskier asset trades, right? So for example, when the Fed is doing quantitative easing and the Fed's balance sheet's increasing, it typically means, uh, you know, bank reserves are increasing commensurately. And bank reserves, it's not money that can be lent into the real economy, but bank reserves are things that flatter banks' capital and liquidity ratios, allowing them to take more risk. All to say that um, when central banks are doing QE, uh, the cost of banks' balance sheet is cheap. So if you're a hedge fund and you want to go lever up, uh, you know, a, a junk bond trade ten to one, when there's QE, sure, you'll find a bank to take the other side of that and give you that that leverage. We're we're actually seeing now and likely to to kind of intensify going forward is not only are we going to see continued quantitative tightening, but you're actually going to see a shift in treasury issuance away from uh, T-bills, so away from kind of you know the front end of the curve, which has been able to be financed by the money market funds towards you know duration, which is going to crowd out riskier assets. And we, this is something we saw in 2019 uh, with you know the, the initial repo market blowups that we saw. And so to bring that back to equities is as treasuries and you know the kind of the the issuance of duration starts to crowd out uh you know start to compete essentially for scarce dollars that's going to be problematic for risk assets including equities so what is your economic view uh do you think the us will continue its resilient growth it will have a slowdown or it will have a recession what powell needs what the fed needs is the fed does need you know, a recession to play out. They, they need the labor market slack to pick up. They need unemployment to rise. They need wage growth to slow. And so Powell and the Fed can't come out and tell you this because if, you know, there was a press conference and the Fed governors were telling you we need to get unemployment up to 6%, they'd be lynched. They couldn't walk down the street, right? Um, but I think that's fundamentally what they need is they need to get growth and inflation down so that they can be convinced that um, 
you know, inflation will remain tepid and that their cuts won't kind of lead to a scenario that we saw in uh, the 1970s. And I think that's kind of the conundrum for the Fed, right? Because, and I will answer your question, just kind of forgive me here, but when you think about the way tightening cycles typically work, it's the Fed increases rates, equities sell off, like multiples contract, earnings slow, that earnings slowdown tends to lead to unemployment going up, leads to cool inflation. The Fed's like, oh, okay, check, I can cut. But now what you've seen is Fed hiked rates, multiples contracted for a, you know, a, a brief second, elevated again. Earnings actually were stronger than the market was expecting. Uh, and unemployment really hasn't budged. So I don't think the Fed can actually cut here. And I think the when it comes to soft landing, no landing, hard landing scenario. If you were to look at one of the charts that I really like is um, the unemployment rate versus jobs hard to get versus jobs Mm. plentiful. Because the jobs hard to get minus plentiful, uh, it tends not to be noisy. And when it moves, it continues to move in that direction and it leads unemployment. The unemployment rate tends to be non-linear, right? So It'll go and then oh, it's, you know, it's going parabolic. It goes, it goes. It goes, it goes, right? So I just kind of look at this and I say part of the problem with kind of economics and, and, uh, and forecasters is as someone who studied economics, what's drilled into your head every day is derivatives, right? The rate of change. Mm-hmm. What I would actually argue is in this context, it's not the derivative, it's the opposite. It's the integral. It's the pressure on the curve that really matters, which is to say, if you have rates at 550 for three months or six months, that pressure on the economy is different than if you have rates at 550 for a year or two years, right? And so just to put this in the Canadian perspective, which which I hope is, is understandable, the Bank of Canada has said, look, as a response of the variable rate mortgages and the interest rate increases that we've seen in Canada, <laughs> The average mortgage payment has increased by $1,000 a month, and that's just the interest component. So, okay, what is the, if let's say that just stays the same, $1,000 a month. Well, the rate of change is zero, but after three months, well, honey, actually, maybe we have to cancel the vacation. After six months, uh, you know, we got to delay the, you know, the car repair. Mm -hmm. After nine months, you know, maybe things start to get a little bit hairier. So I would argue that the Fed needs a harder landing, which isn't to say a financial crisis. You just need a traditional economic slowdown and expectations of a no landing or soft landing where somehow inflation cools, but the labor market stays resilient. Just, I can't really square how that would, how that would play out. So if that's your base case, you you said, I, I, I presume that you see an opportunity to get long durations in the near future. It's just not now. It's just not now, not while you have growth still resilient and perhaps more importantly, not while you have these kind of like global crosswinds that are pushing inflation higher. Got it. Well, Aiden, thanks so much for coming on. Tell us uh, in the audience, where can people uh, find the work that you do at at PGM and and, uh, what what do you broadly do beyond this? Sure. Yeah. So I run the global macro strategy and research team here at PGM. Uh, We put out actionable, concise daily work uh, for institutional investors. Um, so they can you know, either reach out to me on, on Twitter. I think you have my handle up there at Aiden Garib. 
uh, on the cover of the presentation deck that I'd sent you. My email address is there. It's a Garib. Yeah, can we, at, can we uh, share share that like as a PDF? With the, sure. Yeah, okay. I can PDF that for you. Yeah, so it's a Garib at pgmglobal.com. Um, or you can follow me on Twitter at Aiden Garib. I don't I don't uh, tweet prolifically, but I definitely do try to engage, um, you know, when, when I get questions, either via DMs or, or just uh, uh, posts. There you go. Well, uh, Aiden, thanks so much. And thanks to everyone for watching. Thanks, Jack.